At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Welcome to our newest season of Humane Podcast in 2021. Humane is your first look at the startups and industry titans that are leading and disrupting ML and AI, data science, developer tools, and technical education. I am your host, David Jakobovich, and this is Humane. If you like this episode, remember to subscribe and leave a review. Now, on to our show. Welcome, listeners, to the Humane Podcast, where we discuss all things AI, data science, and developer tools. Today, we're featuring Gianluca Moro from Copenhagen, Denmark. Gianluca is a thought leader in artificial intelligence. He runs the AI Academy, is the author of Zero the AI, and is working on some exciting new projects. Gianluca, thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me. Well, really excited for today's conversation. You and I are both educators at heart, working a lot to accelerate learning and training in the new economy. Can you tell us about AI Academy? Sure. So I started AI Academy with my co-founder, Nico Novaligi, when we came back from Silicon Valley, which was 2016, roughly. So I was in Silicon Valley in a, as a project that was sponsored by the Italian Ministry for Economic Development. And the goal was really take a bunch of people that seemed promising send them to Silicon Valley, try to absorb as much as we could, and then come back to Italy and give back to Italy and Europe in general. And I remember when I went there, this was, for the technical people uh, listening, this was when the first you know, image classifications model started actually working. 2015 was when the first model achieved superhuman accuracy on ImageNet, so more than uh, less than 5% header rate. So everybody in Silicon Valley was talking about it. And I didn't know much about this topic. I just knew a little bit of the technical stuff, but I didn't really appreciate the opportunity until I went to Silicon Valley. So when I came back, I thought together with Nicolò, my co-founder, hey, we need to talk about what we've seen. We need to, you know, it doesn't scale to send a bunch of people from Italy to Silicon Valley. And the only thing that we can do is to try to explain people what we've seen and try to make them see the same opportunities that we saw. So we started this company called AI Academy that was focused from day one on education and in the beginning also on technical consulting. I was not super experienced, but Nico was. My co-founder was really good. He already had worked for a bunch of companies in Silicon Valley doing uh, AI and research and development mostly. And so we started doing some technical consulting as well. And then in the last couple of years, we kind of transitioned to doing just education and more of a strategic consulting because we've seen technology becoming always more and more democratic, easier to use. And what companies that you know, were working with us needed was more of a direction rather than you know, a bunch of Python scripts. 
what they needed was having a vision, having a strategy to implement all these projects. And so we started focusing more on uh, on the strategic consulting. That's super fantastic. I remember when I was uh, here in, in New York working with General Assembly and Galvanize, we saw something similar here in the States is that companies could say, okay, teach me uh, phishing, right? Teach me Python, teach me R, teach me SQL. Wait, but but how do I fish? <laughs> how do I implement yeah, exactly. this project? And how do you go from uh, development to production to build those end-to-end systems, which, as you mentioned, John Luca, back in 2015, there really wasn't much of that. Now there's been so many new developer tools and data tools on the market, the industry is continuing to evolve. Exactly. And to give you an idea of what the kind of people that I talk to, I mostly work with traditional large organizations. Some of my clients are Procter & Gamble, uh, Fater, which is a joint venture that produces the Pampers Diapers brand in Italy, and the Linus Tampons brand in Italy. Brunello Cucinelli is a fashion brand, a bunch of energy companies. So a lot of organizations that are not tech companies. So in their hearts, they're in their, in their vision, technology has never been a huge part. It has never played a big role. So when you talk to companies like this, imagine in 2015, and you have to explain them what is TensorFlow, how to code you know, a neural network, and what the hell does it mean to do online training, and even just the cloud sometimes is not a concept that people are familiar with. It sounds weird to anybody who works in tech, but yeah, a lot of companies you know, in, in these industries are still struggling with the cloud. So when you, when you go to these companies and start talking about this technology, they are excited. They're like, yeah, this sounds amazing, but it you have to keep into account the reality of where they are. They're not in a place where they can invest in hiring a full-blown data science team because then nobody knows how to interact with them. Nobody knows how to interact with these people. So you need to meet them where they are. And these people right now, I don't know, it's a little bit better, but like five years ago, they mostly needed to have an understanding of what the hell we were talking about. What is AI? What they can do with it? What is the true opportunity and what is the snake oil that you know some companies are selling them. And you know, that's how we started. Today, what I'm seeing is companies have a, a little bit more of a sophisticated understanding of what is the opportunity really, and what kind of value they can extract from these uh, technologies. They have the tools, maybe. They have, some of them also have the people, but they really struggle in the strategy and implementation in what do they do as a first step? How do we validate their ideas? How do they deploy them? How do they make sure that they can test them and continuously check that the return investment they're getting is the one that they expected? So these are the topics that today I think are very important for the kind of clients that I work with. The key thing that you shared there, John Luca, which I think is in agreement with what I saw at Galvanize, we have a thesis. Every company is a technology company or every company can be a technology company, though technology is not good enough. You could have the best algorithm, the best data set, but what is your plan to business commercialization? And I think that's the key that a lot of companies have been looking at, especially now, post-pandemic, how do you bridge that gap of technology and business? And it sounds like that is something that you, you focus on with your team to help business teams succeed. Absolutely. So the metaphor that I always use is that AI and tech in general to me is a tool. It's like a toolbox, you know? You open your toolbox and you have a hammer, you have a screwdriver, you may have a bunch of other tools. And five years ago, companies were telling me, hey, what's the best hammer that I can buy? Or what's the best uh, screwdriver that I can buy? And I was like, wait a minute, can we focus first on what do you actually need? 
which is, you know, a hole in the wall or something like this, you know, and then we talk about the tool. Today they have these, as I was saying before, they're a little bit more sophisticated. So they, they start thinking about the tools a little bit later. They need to understand first what's their goal, what they want to do with it, especially because the tools, the hammers and the screwdrivers of, of today are a little bit easier to use. So it's not as complicated to get a proper hammer working, let's say, you know. So, yeah, I totally agree with you. Just make them understand what's the vision, what's the purpose, what kind of, what do they want? Do they want a hole in the wall? And uh, and then finding the right tool for it. But a lot of people had it in reverse five years ago. Yeah, a lot of these tools today are becoming very no-code and low-code. We're seeing a lot of new data developer tools coming out. There's been a lot of reports saying that 2020s is the decade of data there's the uh, evolution of the modern data stack. Thinking back to software engineering, the last 20 years, everything was getting into this great toolkit or toolbox to have all these different programming languages and frameworks. And now we're seeing the modernization of that in the data science, machine learning, and data analysis industry. What's your take, uh, Gianluca, on some of this modern data stack and the decade of data? Yeah, I think a lot of companies are understanding that the real value is in the data and not in your algorithms. The algorithms are disposable. As you know, Andrew Eng is talking about this data-centric approach to artificial intelligence and data science. And I strongly agree with that. And I've seen it in all the projects that I've carried with these companies. Most of the times, the value that you get out of your, your AI projects come from having the right data for your project. So in that case, if the value is in the data then the question becomes, how do I make sure that I have the right data available, that the quality of your data is you know, appropriate, and that this data is actually usable so that data scientists can use it to test new ideas and try new projects out. So in this case, I think a lot of people are still focusing on the tools, you know, having the right data stack. But I have found that the biggest problem in companies is governance. So having a, a right governance for how to use the data, how to keep it in the right shape and making sure that the quality is you know, what we need, and then actually bringing to into the laptops of the data scientists so they can make tests and run experiments and make graphs. So I always like to say, it doesn't really matter how good is your technology, uh, how good is your data warehouse or whatever kind of stack you use, if using that data is not easy. If using that data, it's not straightforward for a data scientist. I have a funny story about this. I, there's a friend of mine who works for a large Italian company in a team of, uh, I think, 60 data scientists. It's a you know pretty large organization. And he told me that when they started their AI team five or six years ago, they hired people from the best organizations, from Amazon, from Google, very senior, very skilled data scientists. They all promised them to work on very interesting projects, to use this very interesting data. They showed them the amazing infrastructure they were going to use. Then they hired these people. And then I think half of them quit in the first six months because just to get a data set on their machines to run some simple exploration, it was a nightmare of asking to the legal department, asking to your boss that needs to ask to to his boss that needs to ask to his boss. It was a nightmare. And so these, these people got bored. And so I, when people talk to me about you know, data stacking, what technology to use, I always ask first, are you sure that you have the right culture and the right governance to take full advantage of this technology? It's not really useful to have the best tech if then your organization is not ready to make this tech work 
for what it's supposed to do, you know, which is to make data scientists work in a more agile and faster way. What do you think about it? It's interesting that uh, today at Single Store, I had an innovation conference in conversation with our chief innovation officer, Oliver. He originally came from SaaS, and we were talking about the teams that they built out there. And so a few years ago, it's exactly what you just described, Gianluca. They'd hire a team of 40 or 50 algorithm engineers, these data scientists that are you know, tuning models and making a specific use case work. But today, that's not as needed anymore. There's a lot more work that should be done to uh, validate data early on or work with more modern frameworks. So I think there is a transition with the teams. Myself today also as an investor in this space with Data Power Ventures, we're investing a lot into data developer tools. One of the companies that we recently came into in their pre-seed round, uh, Retable AI, is building a system that you know augments DBT and Fivetran. And their thesis is the data developer tools have actually been underserved, mostly with the data analysts. Everyone's been building for the data scientist, the machine learning engineer, the AI specialist. But how about the data analyst? I mean, my career, I started as an actuary and became a data analyst and a business intelligence analyst. And those people in those fields are often doing the hard work, right, to stage and prep the data so that data scientists and MLEs can be successful. And so this company is one that's building a tool that's no code, that has predictive insights to make it easier to move through those workflows. And the key is thinking about the modern data stack you know, their thesis is, hey, you can hire a team of five, six people, a few hundred thousand dollars, or have a tool, SaaS subscription, a few thousand dollars a month, and you have a data analyst that manages that, and you save a lot because, let's go counterintuitive to what I shared before, not every company is a technology company, and not every company also has the budget to hire a full army of data scientists and ML engineers. So it's definitely both sides of the coin that we're seeing with new and emerging tools. And I think there's also another point to this, which is you need to give the tool to the person that actually needs it and actually uses it. So you made a good example where you said, you know, the data analysts are the people that do a lot of the work because they're the ones, you know, crunching the numbers and taking insights and doing all this kind of stuff. But if the tools are made for data scientists, then you have data scientists building for data analysts who are then going to use the tools to make, to do their work. And so... A lot of the times, it's hard to know what a data analyst needs if you don't do his job, right? And this reminds me of a conversation I had with um, my friend Jim Gao, who was the person at Google who built a system that allowed Google to save 40% of the energy saving of their data centers. That's Ford Zero. And right now, he, he opened a new startup called Phydra. And this startup is trying to give you know, tools and to uh, engineers to do the job that he did at Google as a data scientist, basically, you know? So basically give all the tools to, to engineers working in, in industrial departments of large organizations to build these kind of models. Because they are the ones that understand the system. And in the same way, I think, you know, if we want to use AI for marketing, you need to give tools to the marketeers that understand the problem to, you know, use AI on their data for their problems. When I talk about, I don't know, sales, well, I don't understand the sales data set. I, it takes me a lot of time to understand the logics of a sales of a sales team, of the data that the sales team works with. To a sales team who really understands this data, the right tools 
to, you know, like they don't have to be able to do everything, but at least to get started, you know, well, then they know much better than me the data, so they know much better than me what it's possible to do. It's kind of like, I think we're in, in a moment where we're trying to create a middle ground between the technical people and the domain experts. So there are some tasks and some projects that right now are starting to become more accessible to domain experts that don't have technical expertise, whereas before 100% of the AI projects, of the data science projects, were all in the hands of technical people. So there's been this kind of shift enabled by these tools. And I think there was, for a brief period of time, there was a title that was emerging in the space. McKinsey and others were talking about the new take of the data translator, You know, this role that has the hybrid of the data analyst and data scientist. I don't think that title ever really stuck. I, I've seen a lot of the startups emerging. It's pretty much become data analysts, data scientists. If you're a more specialized team, maybe there's the machine learning engineer, the AI specialist, the data engineer. Of course, SWEs and SREs. Are you seeing any other titles emerging or dynamics with the teams? Yes. I mean, there's a friend of mine. He's an AI evangelist at a pharmaceutical company. What does he mean? Well, basically, he was a data scientist. And then he transitioned into this role where he goes to the, you know, the business people and he tries to listen to their needs and tries to explain them, you know, hey, this kind of challenge that you have may become an AI project. And he tries to kind of pull from the, the business to identify potential opportunities for AI. And so his title is AI Evangelist. I've met people who, on the business cards, they have AI Product Manager. You know, there's a bunch of different titles, really. But to me, it sounds like there's not a really well-defined name to this role, but it, there is a need that people have been talking about, and it's I think it's pretty clear, which is the need of somebody who bridges technical capabilities, you know, what, what all these tools can do, and the business needs. The name of this person, I don't know, and I don't think everybody knows right now. McKinsey tried to push Data Translator. I think the name didn't sound really well, so it didn't really stuck. But, you know, maybe it's going to be called AI Evangelist. I don't know, but I think it doesn't matter the name. I don't know. I think what matters is that there is a need for somebody that understands both worlds. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Maybe in the future, there's not going to be this need and everybody's going to, quote unquote, speak data science or speak data or speak AI, whatever you you want to you wanna focus on. I like both of the points that you share there, Gianluca, because the evangelist is so important. You know, we at Signal Store, we have technical evangelists and developer evangelists, right? But these are generally like all purpose around the tool and specializing 
in Data and AI with an AI evangelist. I really like that title. I was recently at AI Summit in New York City, which is one of the leading AI conferences as well on the technology and the business. So uh, actually one of the executives at Fiddler AI was presenting and their title is AI Evangelist at Fiddler AI, right? So we're definitely seeing that as the merging title. We should see more of that in the next couple of years. And yeah, I think that fits directly into the PMMs and the product marketing organization. On the product manager side, I agree with you also. I did a, a training delivery in the last uh, year that was remote as a result of the pandemic, and I taught 30 AI product managers how to incorporate AI into their you know, workflows and work streams and, and product roadmaps. So a PM is a PM, but they can specialize as well, right? So definitely, you know, why not have a software PM? Why not have a data PM? Why not have an AI PM? So it's really uh, exciting. I think those titles have a little bit more weight to them. So looking forward to seeing those emerging in the market. Absolutely, because in the end of the day, AI, data science, it's software, but it's different enough from, you know, building an app that you may have actually a need for a specialized role. And I was actually training a user experience team in Rome last week. Mm -hmm. And I thought about how important it is for a UX team to know how AI works if they need to you know, embed touch points during the, the user experience where you get the right data from the user so that you can feed AI models. Think about TikTok for a moment. The success of TikTok is because of this recommend, you know, recommender system that works really well. But if you think about it, the actual difference between TikTok and every other social media is not the algorithm probably, but it's in how the user experience feeds the algorithm. So the fact that you have a single video every point in time and there's nothing else that distracts you is the perfect way for to collect the right data about how much you like that video, how much time you spend on that video. There was a Wall Street Journal investigation that tried to, basically they made some bots and tried to understand what the algorithm is, is measuring. And it looks like the only thing that matters is really how much time you spend on a video. So the UX was thought out to get the right data for an algorithm to recommend videos. So it's kind of a paradox because the most important thing of the app is the recommender system. But the reason why that works is not because of the tech, but because of how the UX feeds the tech. And if you think about this, if you think about this concept, well, then your UX designers they need to understand this. They need to understand what it means to feed an algorithm with the right data. And so they need to design the user experience around the needs of the algorithm and of the human, obviously. Mm -hmm. But you see where I'm going. You cannot possibly come up with TikTok just with a team of data scientists without the help of a UX designer that understands AI and designs a user experience that takes into consideration, in consideration what the AI needs. Does that make sense? Yeah, and so thinking about all these insights for all these emerging platforms, whether they're the TikToks of the world or the applications that help me with my everyday needs, like Lemonade for insurance around the apartment or loft. There's so many use cases that we're seeing data and AI today. And uh, you as well, John Luca, you're the author of the book Zero to AI, which is about helping everyone learn and be more successful with AI. Can you share with us a little bit more about your book and why you decide to become an author? Sure. So let's start with, the, with why I wrote a book. So since I came back to Europe, I've been kind of obsessed with this idea of making 
what I've seen in Silicon Valley, so the knowledge that acquired a little bit more democratic. So make it easier for people to understand technology and envision what technology can do for them and for their organization. Because I think it's it's not something you can push to people. You cannot go to a marketeer and tell him, hey, this is how AI is going to change marketing. No, I think the better approach will be to explain AI to this person and give him the tools to foresee how it's going to change his industry. So this is what I wanted to do. And I realized, well, I'm doing a lot of consulting and trainings for large corporations, but how can I take this knowledge how can I take this framework that I have for explaining AI to non-technical people and make it scale? And I thought that a book made sense. <laughs> so I wrote this book that you know takes basically everything that I've been sharing with executives, managers, and large corporations and packages it in roughly 200 pages so that people that have no idea about what is AI but are interested in how that can shape their business can read the book and get a good understanding of how the technology works and how they could potentially implement it in their organization. So starting from finding opportunities to framing them as machine learning projects to finding the right data, to what it means to have the right data, to how you can deploy it or how you can you know, start building some prototypes. That was really the goal of the book. And I think, I think the book has been pretty successful because a lot of the people that, uh, that read the book that came to me and said, hey, I got inspired to do Project X or to do Project Y. And that's exactly what I want to do. I mean, obviously, you're not going to read a book and then make a trillion dollar company in AI. But that's, I think, a good start to build this foundation of knowledge that you need as a non-technical person to find the right opportunities for AI. So I'm pretty happy with the success of the book, I have to say. Exciting. That is really great to hear about uh, how you're helping bridge the gap with both technologists and business leaders uh, with Zero to AI. And from your experience, both in consulting and, and business and leaving as, as educator, as author, as consultant, we've been seeing a lot of trends, especially in the last couple of years. I was recently at the AI Summit in New York, and uh, the big word this year, you could see it through all the keynotes, was trustworthy responsible, ethical, right? It's all coming to light now. And I know, Gianluca, you and I have talked over the years that, you know, this is not something new, right? People have been talking about ethics and responsible AI like five, six years ago, but now it seems to be coming to light. Love to hear more of your take on ethics uh, around data and AI. Yeah, absolutely. So I think if you think about where AI started from, it started from Silicon Valley, right? That's where basically, you know, all the, tech companies that really push the boundaries of AI are from. And what's the mindset of these people? Well, you know, the infamous quote from uh, Martin Zuckerberg, you move fast and break things, right? And I see how it can serve someone having this mindset. But if you think about it, once you have technology that, you know, with a click, you can deploy to a billion people, then you can break things for a billion people, right? And so we have seen cases where these things went wrong. And I may start from, you know, the, the stuff that everybody knows about, you know, the elections in 2016, fake news and all this stuff, up until more niche, let's say, topics that maybe not a lot of people are aware of, but that, you know, impact actually had a strong impact on people. An example is AI in hiring. There was a very interesting research made by MIT Technology Review uh, from Hilke Schildmann about how a lot of companies that sell software for hiring that leverage AI are actually biased and they tend to either uh, favor men for tech roles, that's a classic example, right? 
or to discriminate people of color. So there's a lot of issues uh, around not just the tech that everybody talks about, so again, social media, but also around more like niche applications like AI for hiring. So that's the scenario. That's where we are today. Uh, there's a lot of people building technology very fast, but then having a lot of issues that have just not been checked. And I think the public opinion in the couple of years, in the last couple of years, has become a little bit more careful about these things, more skeptical of technology. There's, there's less trust for technology companies. And that's fueled by, again, what happened with Facebook, win the elections in 2016, about all these different topics. We can, I don't want to get into the, the details and saying, you know, who's right and who's wrong, but a fact is that people don't trust technology anymore. And as I said before, I think they have good reason to do that. So there's this huge trend of ethical AI. The point is, what does it mean to build ethical AI? I think a lot of times this becomes, companies are trying to balance the need for ethical AI with the mindset that they have of build fast, you know, move fast and break things. The two things are not necessarily compatible, I think. I think a lot of times you actually need to slow down when you are deploying technologies that can actually impact you know, a billion people. And that's where I think technology companies are. How do they keep the speed and the momentum that made them rich while keeping an eye open for the problems that may cause to society. And in the meantime, you have regulators that are trying to catch up. And the European Union, for instance, published the AI Act in April, I think. And that's a first step. It's not perfect, but regulators are trying to set up some boundaries to at least, you know, ethical AI, it's one thing. Lawful AI, it's another thing. Today, everything that you do with AI, it's by definition within the law because there's no law that restricts what you can and cannot do when it comes to artificial intelligence, right? So, you have tech companies, you have the governments trying to regulate it, but I think what nobody has to forget and always have to keep in mind is the public opinion. So people simply don't trust technology anymore as they were used to. I see this all the time. Whenever there's a new new technology coming up, yesterday I had a, a deep dive uh, with uh, some of my customers about the metaverse and everybody, first thing that they said is, I am scared. So it's not anymore, hey, I'm excited, there's a new iPhone. It's, hey, I'm scared. This new technology may have this issue, this other issue, it may make us even more dependent from technology, it may, kind of, may you know, create disparities, you know, it may do a bunch of different things. But people first question the utility of these technologies and then they start thinking whether they can, they can actually be, bring a positive impact. And that's something that we don't have to forget. We have to keep in mind. People don't trust technology as much as they were used to. And so tech companies need to adapt if they want to keep pushing this technology and keep making this technology more used. What do you think about it? Does it make sense? I think it's absolutely essential. As part of my investment thesis at Data Power Ventures, we've created the industry's first data rider. So when you think about diversity, right? Just in the last few years, everyone says that they're coming out in support for BIPOC for women in tech, for LGBTQ, right, for all diversity. But the diversity rider was started over 10 years ago. There were different companies championing for diversity when no one was listening in the room. And now everyone, you know, after the George Floyd shootings in the United States, everyone comes out supporting diversity. I think the same thing's starting to happen with data and AI. When you look at that parallel for many years, 
you know, people like perhaps yourself and myself have been saying, we have to be responsible, we have to be ethical. No one cared, no one listened, right? And just now after we've seen some issues like Clearview AI and selling the data to the police departments in the United States and other data breaches in Europe around GDPR where there was non-compliance, now people are starting to listen. And this is why I've also created this data writer to say, look, if we're going to make investments in venture-backed companies, we need investors, we need founders, we need a community to be aligned on being responsible social stewards with the fair use of data, not only for the cap table with investments, but among all of our constituents. It's to the point that everyone at the company It is their fiduciary duty to be fair and responsible with data. It should no longer be just the right of the SRE to say, oh, the AWS endpoint is not open to the world, so our data is secure, right? It's everyone's responsibility to ensure they're building resilient systems and thinking about society as a whole. So I think that's absolutely paramount. I'm excited that you know, the EU's taken a stance with the Artificial Intelligence Act. I think the U.S. is lagging behind, as we historically do, with privacy and rights. Uh, so it's great that that the EU's taken that stance. I know that uh, the Biden administration has brought about a new AI commission. So we'll see if uh, the U.S. has something similar in the next couple of years. Taking this all in hand, we've covered a lot of great topics today on the show, Gianluca. Talk about moving forward. Talk about this decade of data. What do you see on the horizon or what are you excited about as we're moving into the new year? Yeah, so I think from a general perspective, I'm excited about the topic that we just talked about. I'm excited about data ethics and how this is going to change. I hope that we're going to get to a point where ethics is not going to be an optional, where ethics is going to be embedded into the workflow of data scientists. And I think we are really at the beginning of this change and really looking forward to see how where this is going to go and hopefully to contribute, you know. That's probably the thing that excites me the most on a, let's say, from a general point of view. When it comes to my company, my programs, there's one thing that I've been researching for the last three months. I realized this. AI is very interesting, for sure, super powerful, but a lot of people in non-technical organizations, they miss the context. So they can understand AI, but they maybe don't know about how data flows between Apple and Apple devices, or they don't know how Facebook operates. They hear about the metaverse and they're confused about what that is. They don't know what NFTs are. And so you're giving them a tool, but they don't understand necessarily the technological context that they can use this tool on. You know, And so I started this program where I do a bi-weekly deep dive on a topic. We talked about the metaverse yesterday. We talked about self driving cars two weeks ago. And I explained the topic for 40 minutes, roughly. And then we have a little discussion. So I divide the audience into breakup rooms and they are able to exchange ideas and talk between each other about these topics. And then they come back to me and then we discuss what they found out. And it has been amazing, honestly, because then you have people coming from all sorts of backgrounds. I give them the tools and the foundational knowledge that they need to talk about these topics in a way that is productive. And they bring their own perspectives. They bring their own experience. And I have to say, I've been amazed by the insights that we were able to get from these conversations. So next year, I want to expand this program because, again, I think it's important to bring knowledge to you know to the masses, to be make more democratic this access to general technology knowledge, not just artificial intelligence, because artificial intelligence needs to work in a context that makes sense. It needs to have 
the right context to get the right data, the right platforms to be used when it comes to you know building apps and this kind of uh, final applications. And so I'm excited for this. This is, I think, the personal project that I'm most excited about. Well, I'm excited as well. And Gianluca, can't wait to see where that ends up. Perhaps you have a new platform yourself that you'll be revealing in next year to our listeners. So uh, thanks so much. This has been an episode on Humane with Gianluca Moro, who is the founder of AI Academy and the author of Zero to AI. Thanks so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you for having me, David. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Humane Podcast. Did the episode measure up to your thoughts on ML and AI, data science, developer tools, and technical education? Share your thoughts with me at humanepodcast.com forward slash contact. Remember to share this episode with a friend, subscribe and leave a review, and listen for more episodes of Humane. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.